So first question I want to ask us is if someone asked you what ultimately this is about, what would you say, this entire book? How would you summarize it? I know that's a daunting task because there's a lot of words in here. But what ultimately is this about? Any ideas? For me, this book is God's love letter to us. Okay, I've heard it summarized that way as well. Yeah, God's love letter to us. Amen. So we've got this idea that it's, it's God's communication to us that we may live well and be blessed by him. Now, if we think about the whole of Scripture, and depending on how familiar we are with Genesis to Revelation, are there things in the Bible, and that is 100% true, I agree with you, Rose, are there things in Scripture that would go beyond that, though? Are there things in Scripture that are not necessarily explicitly to me about how to live a blessed life? Yeah, right? Of course. I mean, you even just think of parts of the Mosaic Law are not, to me, um, they can help me. All scripture is God-breathed and useful, but in a very specific way. So that definitely has to be part of it, is God's letter to us, his communication, his self-disclosure, that we may live well. But let's go even bigger. So what else could this be if we're going to summarize this book? What is it about? I see it like a dictionary. Okay. I like that. It's almost like a life dictionary. If I don't understand something, I go to... And I so appreciate your holding up God's word as the final authority. That's where I'm going to go ultimately to try to understand life and all this. Wonderful. What else? Love. It tells it's from the beginning to the end, it's all about love. Okay. God's love Good. for us. Good. Come on in tomorrow. So love is a big theme. What are some other... That might be where we go next. So what the story is about, what the Bible is about, what, maybe some of its themes that unite the whole. I mean, so love might be one. God, we could say, created out of love, an overflow of his love. He spoke the world into existence. Uh, we want to be careful not to make the error of saying that God created us out of some necessity. Right? He doesn't need us. It's an outpouring of who he is. So love could be an example of that. And we'd see love all the way to consummation, revelation. That's why love comes in as well. What are some other themes that... Again, transcend the whole of Scripture. Mercy. Mercy, excellent, good. And we would say mercy is definitely a huge theme, although does it encapsulate everything? Grace, grace my grace from beginning to end, absolutely. Faithfulness. Tale of two cities, from the garden to the city, right? Or even Babel to uh, the new, new Jerusalem. What else? Redemption is a major, major theme, isn't it? And some people will say it is the macro theme of Scripture, redemption. And I would challenge us to say it, the main theme has got to be bigger than that because there are things in the Bible, again, that are outside of redemption. I mean, why did he make the angels? Even the angelology itself, it has nothing to do with our redemption, so to speak, but it's still part of God's creation. So whatever the macro, macro theme is, it definitely, redemption is huge and we have to understand it but it still comes under something even bigger than that. Kingdom is a massive, massive theme. And we've been right on the tail end of our 17-year study in Matthew, right? Where this, this, 
Like the kingdom is this massive theme. So where's the kingdom in the garden? Let's, let's, uh, because obviously David is nowhere in Eden. So where is the kingdom? When we say the kingdom is a major theme, what do we mean? God's presence. Okay, so he is the ultimate king, right? And when he creates, he puts Adam and Eve to be what? Guardians, stewards, image bearers. So almost like outposts of his king reign, intermediaries. So he's going to reign from heaven, and they're going to reign as his representatives on earth over his kingdom. It's his authority through them. So right off the bat in Eden, there's almost this kingdom reign through um, what we call media, mediators, a mediatorial reign. And that gets messed up because of Genesis 3, right? And the whole scripture is like this, how are we going to get this kingdom back? And it's this reestablishing, which by the time we get to the end of Revelation, it is very much established. Now, one of the major themes that uh, many theologians will notice that is kind of the unifying, unifying theme is the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. Why does he create? Because it brings him glory. Why does he save? It brings him glory. Why did he create angels? It brings him glory. Why will it consummate in the new heavens and new earth? Because it's all about the glory of God. And under the glory of God, there are these other themes like salvation, huge. Kingdom is huge. Creation itself is a theme. He creates, it gets spoiled, and we could say from Genesis 4 to the end of Revelation is this mission to recreate because it brings God glory. Okay, so there's these massive macro themes. Now, we get into Scripture, we start putting together all these pieces, and it is, I'll speak for myself, it can be overwhelming because there's so much revelation. I mean, how do we fit Haggai into one of these themes? How do we fit Isaiah into one of these themes? How do we fit Second Peter into one of these themes? Like, it's just so much stuff. And so what I want to do today is suggest one way that we can kind of get our bearings when we look at the whole of Scripture. And I would say that these are kind of God-given uh, tent pegs that he pounds into the ground at certain points of history and says, at the very least, this is what I'm saying. You might get confused in the latter parts of Isaiah. You might get confused of all these things. I can't say less than these things. These are kind of the, the anchors he drops along the way, and they're called the biblical covenants. And we know what covenants are? If we were going to define a covenant, what would a covenant be? A promise? Is that completely synonymous, a covenant and a promise? Or is there something a little extra in one of them? Interesting. Okay, so uh, a, a covenant is like a um, much stronger than a promise because it's a dedication. There's a dedication there. Um, good. What else? When we think of covenant, covenant, a more yeah, it's like a an amped up contract almost, right? Where two or more parties enter in, and just like in a mortgage, there are terms, right? That if the covenant is broken on one side or another, what happens to the whole? It's gone, right? So the covenant, there's terms, and if they're broken by one side or the other, the covenant goes away. And there's skin in the game on both sides. They're, they both are risking something to go into this covenant. Now, let's just state the obvious. What good is a covenant if it's not understood? What good is a covenant? Zero good, right? If, now, granted, when I entered into my first mortgage, I'm not sure I understood everything that was going on there. I think some of that was intentional, and some of that was my own ignorance, probably. But 
in the grand scheme of things, if we want a covenant, if, if Rick and I were going into a covenant together and we laid out terms, it's no good if we don't understand the terms or if the terms can change later on. That makes the covenant null and void. That makes the covenant useless if he doesn't understand the terms, if I don't understand the terms, if we don't know what we're getting into, or if they could shift later on. That means that covenant is absolutely useless. So when we go through salvation history, when we go through the scriptures, God once in a while drops these covenants where he makes the terms very clear, the parties very clear who are entering in, and no matter what we understand, my, what I would suggest is no matter what we understand about Revelation, no matter what we understand about the Bible, it can't go against these covenants. These are rock solid, God entering in, dedicating himself. He puts himself, his own, to say it crassly, skin in the game to come in, make a covenant with us, um, so that we know, at the very least, this is what's going to happen. There's argumentation over all the other things in the Bible. We're trying to understand his word, but these things must take place, because his word is his bond. Very, very, very important. Now, a follow-up question. Why would God make covenants? I think I read somewhere that God cannot lie. I'm pretty sure that's in the Bible. Maybe in Numbers somewhere, in Titus, chapter 1. So if his yes is yes and his no is no all the time, then why does he bother making a covenant? Why can't he just say, here's what I'll do? Because he wants us involved. That's why he created us, to have a relationship with him. Okay. So if he's the only one doing and we're just taking, then, yeah, it's not going to work. Okay, so he wants us involved. Okay, let me... um, I like that. Let's start here. What, what would be the first... Well, give me an example of a biblical covenant. Does anyone, can anyone name a biblical covenant? Noah. Noah, thank you. So the Noahic covenant. We'll get to that in a minute here. But if you know the Noahic covenant, he comes in and God says, here's what's going to happen. Humanity's not really involved so much as we're hearing it. Right? In the same way as in the garden when he says, you shall not eat this tree lest you surely die, he's saying something... And they're involved in so much as they're hearing and understanding and abiding by it, right? So it's not so much that we're being invited to partake, because we know, and we'll get to this unilateral covenant where God enters it himself. Um, we're basically just the beneficiaries of this covenant. So really, pardon me? We have to trust him. We have to trust him, right? So in the garden, he says, and I'm a believer, some people disagree, I don't think there is a covenant in the garden itself. But he certainly says some things, don't eat of this tree and you will surely die, right? So that's... And that is his yes, yes, his no, no. That is what it means. But then he makes a covenant with no one, actually uses that word. Why the covenant? Why not just say, here's what's going to happen? Why does he bother creating these terms and entering in? It just seems like it's um, redundant, doesn't it? His yes is yes, his no is no. Why does he bother doubling down on his own infallibility? Thank you. That has to be the answer, right? Why does he double down and make these covenants? Because we cannot understand, and we don't trust, and we doubt. So God, in his grace, will once in a while say, okay, I've been speaking, you should be listening. Now, if you've heard nothing else, listen to this. This is crucial. And it's for our good. It's for us that he goes through history and he drops these anchors, these massive covenants, that as we go through the Bible... At the, again, at the very least, we go back to these covenants and say, this must happen. We should trust all that God says. But at the end of the day, we want to read what God says through these places where he almost stands on a soapbox, grabs his megaphone and says, listen up, these things are secure. And just like any covenant, 
We want to pay attention to the words of his covenants because if we don't understand them, they mean nothing. He wants them to be understandable, and they cannot change. Very, very crucial. So that's what I want to go through these covenants quickly today, see how they all fit together and how they can give us kind of a, almost a backbone of the Bible that we, it helps us understand the rest of scripture, honestly, and it helps us understand the whole as it all fits together. Okay? Any questions about what we've talked about so far? The need of covenant, what they are, why God would bother? Straight, is it really easy or am I just talking nonsense right now? I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy, right? It's just him making words, him entering covenants. Okay, good. All right, so let's go through them one at a time. I, like was mentioned before, I do believe that the Noahic covenant, the covenant God makes with Noah, is the first covenant in the Bible. Um, there are many who believe that there are these, I'm going to be careful to say it kindly, um, theological covenants. So covenants that God has made within himself before creation that kind of govern all of Scripture. I'll be very clear, there's no support for that in Scripture at all. These are imaginary things that have been made up to, because it's been decided that salvation is the goal of all Scripture. And that will come in. We've, we talked about how that can't be the total goal of Scripture. Um, but, um, so I believe that the Noahic covenant is the first covenant. Some people say, well, God made a covenant in the garden with Adam and Eve. Well, hang on a second. Adam and Eve, before they fell, they didn't need a covenant from God. They had unfallen ears to hear what God was saying. They knew exactly what God was saying. That makes their betrayal all the worse because they heard him clearer than we hear anything and they still walked away from him. So we come to the end of what happens in Genesis um, 4, 5, and 6. Walk us out. Let's just summarize the story. Genesis 4 is after the fall, 5 and 6. What's happening here? Anyone know? The ark? He is, yes, at the very end of that. So Genesis 6. So remember Genesis 4, what happens in Genesis 4? Genesis 3 is the fall, right? Bad Cain and Abel. So right off the bat. So what's fascinating is, you know, Cain and Abel come into play. So the fall happens and murder right off the bat. Like the first thing that happens. And then it just goes down and down and down. Until Genesis 6, what does God do? He looks at his creation in Genesis 6. It just, every thought that they have is wicked all the time. And in a great mystery, it says in the Bible that God regrets making humanity. I don't know fully what that means as far as his foreknowledge and all that kind of stuff goes. I just know at that moment, God looks and says, oh, what a disaster. That would be um, Genesis 6, 6, the Lord yes. that he had made man on the earth. Yeah. And he did, his heart, the Lord's heart. Yes, and that's not even, that's not even the maybe even the most confusing part of that passage. Because what sparked that was the Nephilim. Remember the Nephilim in Genesis 6? The sons of God come down, they see the daughters of men, and they start having children, and there's buckets of ink spilled on what is going on there. All we know is it's bad. I want to just leave it at that. I have an opinion there, obviously, but let's just leave it. It's bad. It's bad news. So God comes, and he basically takes an etch-a-sketch to the world. He says, we're going to start to go over, and he uses a flood, a global flood, and he preserves Noah. Right? Noah and his, uh, his sons and their uh, wives. So I want someone to read for us Genesis chapter 9. So the, the, the flood waters have subsided. And someone read for us Genesis 9, starting in verse 8 to verse 17. 8 to 17.
herds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with every living creature on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again. Sorry. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant. I am making between me and you and every living creature for you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind of life. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Great. Do you hear the word covenant at all in there? <laughs> a few times, right? Just in case we missed it. Covenant, covenant, covenant. Okay. So really, in what you read there, and thank you for that, we have this kind of preamble. And then in verse 11, there's the oath. That's when God swears an oath. And there you have kind of the terms of the covenant in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Let's ask the question here. What do we expect based on that covenant? The covenant God made with Noah. No flood. How did you get that? That seems too easy, right? Do we take God at his word? Does anyone in here expect that perhaps one day in the near future, God will destroy the world with a flood? No. Why? Because he's covenanted. He won't do it, right? So here's the point. God says something and he expects, because it's a covenant we're entering into with him. Again, if we can't understand it, then it's worth nothing. Worth nothing. So he makes it very clear. Here's the covenant that we're entering into. Okay? And by the way, it's a unilateral covenant, which means it's just God entering into it, right? Bilateral mean here are the terms like a, um, a mortgage contract. We have those terms. If I don't pay, if I don't meet my end, then all this kind of stuff. Unilateral means God enters into it himself, which means it's all on him. So if one of the terms of the covenant do not come to pass, who stands to pay? God. And obviously we know that that can't be, so that is a confirmation of the veracity of this covenant. It must come to pass. And what is the covenant? No flood global to destroy the world. Now it says nothing about fire, but that will come later on, right? But for now, there is no flood to destroy the earth. We understand what he's saying here. So what we have in this first covenant, coming out of this Noahic covenant, is really a guarantee that the world will stay consistent. It is the, the, basically the platform is set for that creation, that seeking of new creation, the kingdom, what he's going to do, the redemption of all things, will sit on top of what is a consistent, uh, we'll call it a platform, or we could say the stage is set. And by the way, this is why we can do science today. There's uniformity in creation. There's a measurability. Science is about observing, measuring, repeating, observing, measuring, repeating. Well, we can do that because nothing is going to change on a global scale again. We don't know that when you talk, read the flood account, it says the heavens opened up, the water came from the down, water came from above. Before the flood, people are living how long? 
after people are living up to 100 years all of a sudden, something has fundamentally changed in the atmosphere and the makeup of creation. It will never happen again. That's why we can explore creation. That's why we can be stewards. That's why we can um, take dominion in the way we do today, which is a mandate, by the way, but it's because of this consistent platform on which the rest of this epic will take place. But it's measurable, it's predictable, because God said it will never be destroyed again in this way. Okay. So it's a very important covenant. It's a pretty simple covenant, honestly. No more flood. But it has huge ramifications for the rest of Scripture. We're only six, seven, eight chapters in. Pretty important. Okay. Any questions on the, Mosaic, or the, um, the Noahic covenant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the earth just seemed to have a way of water. Yeah. Kind of, right? Like it, it would, this mist would come up in the garden and it would water, keep everything going. Yeah. But the hard part, I'm sure, that people are reading this who are going through floods right now, there's this just massive amount of floods that are happening mm-hmm. around the world. And this gets questioned. I know it's not a global Again, it's the, the global scale that he has promised never to destroy the world again and alter existence as we know it. He won't do that again. He's promised. So now we have the dance floor. Now we have the stage set for the rest of this biblical um, unfolding. So what would be the next covenant that comes along after the Noahic? Anyone know? with an insignificant guy named Abram. Abram, right? So Genesis chapter 12. So really, Genesis through 12 through 22, there's a ton of covenantal language in here. We're not going to read all of that uh, tomorrow. You're not going to have to read all of that. But let's read a few sections here. So first, someone read for us uh, just the first three verses of chapter 12. Great. 15, verse 8. Someone read. Chapter 15, verse 8. Or, sorry, 18. 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant to Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the river of Euphrates. Good. 17, verses 4 through 8. Oh, my covenant is with you, and you should be a, a, a 
father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. Um, after you throughout generations for everlasting, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Excellent. Last one, I'll read chapter 22, verse 15 and following. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Okay. Now, that is uh, just a representation of those, that section of Scripture. What would we say is the covenant? What are the terms of the oath involved in this promise that God is giving to Abram? Abraham. Blessing, okay, specifically. Okay, so we've actually got three here things, right? So we've got um, land comes up a few times, just a few times, and it will come up. Honestly, land throughout the Old Testament is a massive, massive issue. What else? Seed, and can we do, do you mind if I put a capital S on that? Yes. Is that okay? You do mind? No. no okay, no. good. <laughs> so seed, I say, because a descendant is coming from you, and it's actually singular, meaning they're expecting a descendant. Certainly descendants, but a descendant. Now that harkens back to a little something in Genesis chapter 3, right? This idea that there is coming one who will, a son of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Since then, and this is kind of lost in English a little bit, but you know, Genesis 3 happens, one is coming to do this. Genesis 4 happens, Eve gives birth to Cain, and she says, behold a man. And she's like, this is him, this is the guy. They're expecting a person to reverse this curse. Obviously, she was a few thousand years short, but that's this anticipation. There's one coming, and it, God says it's going to come through you, Abraham, this seed. And this seed is going to, um, we call it, is going to bless the world. I'm going to bless the world through you, through this descendant that's going to come. Now, it's very easy for us. We're starting to fill in blanks as New Testament believers, right? Who's the seed? Like the seed is Jesus, and he's going to bless the world in some very amazing ways. But for now, they have this idea of a, um, a blessing, a blessed progeny coming. Okay, what else? There's one other. There's land. There's this worldwide blessing through a seed. A nation, right? A great multitudes or... Um, yeah, a huge, it's actually nations from are going to come through you, okay? So this covenant actually has kind of three strands coming from it. Now, um, and so we could say, now we have uh, a people, we've got, a, oops, sorry, it's a, these are reversed. People, a place, and then this progeny with a capital P, actually, because it is the Lord Jesus. So here's this. This three-pronged covenant with Abraham. I'm going to give you a people, huge people. I'm going to give you land that you're going to live in. And through you, I'm going to bless the world through this blessed progeny that's going to come. Now, if we take our method of interpretation from Noah's covenant, 
What do we understand? What's going to happen with Noah's covenant? A flood. Why? Because he said a flood is going to come. Now we take this from Abraham's. We don't want to switch our method of interpretation all of a sudden. So coming from Genesis 12 through 22, we come to the end. What should we be expecting? These things, right? Exactly these things. It's not a trick question. Right? What were they expecting after Genesis 9? No more flood. What are we expecting in Genesis 23 when we get on the tail end of all these covenants? A people through Abraham, a land for them to live in forever, and a seed that's going to come and bless the world. We need to take that. Again, we're reading the Bible this way and the way it was written, right? So and I emphasize this because there are many people today who go to the New Testament and say, aha, we have new information, and go back and change a lot of this stuff. If you can change the terms of the covenant, it was not a covenant. And it makes God out to be a liar and a bad communicator. We, I will not be guilty of saying that. So you will always hear taught from every lectern and pulpit in this church, God means what he says. And he's actually pretty good at speaking when he wants to be understood. And this is what he said to Abraham. This is what has to come to pass. If we can understand it or not, that is totally beside the point, whether we can comprehend all these pieces that are fitting together. If it does not come true the way he says it will, then God's a liar. And then, by the way, if he can renege on this stuff, what about our salvation? What about the seal of the Holy Spirit in me? He said, anyone who believes in me has the Holy Spirit sealing the promise of Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, he said some other stuff too. And he changed that because they blew it. Well, I blow it all the time. So does that mean he can just take the Holy Spirit away from me? May it never be, as Paul says. Right? So we want to take God at his word. Very, very important that we understand these covenants. Okay? Any questions on Abraham? All right. Next covenant. I heard it actually the last time. Yes, Exodus. So we would call this one, um, it's got a couple names, but you can call it the Mosaic Covenant or Sinaitic Covenant because it's at Mount Sinai. So we're not going to, this is chapters and chapters of this, uh, of this covenant. So someone summarize for me, uh, what's the Mosaic Covenant about? What led them to the place where they got this covenant from the Lord? Because the people were being oppressed. Okay, the people were being oppressed in Egypt. Very interesting, right? So we're, how are these nations? How on earth? It's one guy, and he has one son in, when he's 100 years old. Like, how are we going to get this, uh, these, all these nations coming from him? Well, it's through oppression, actually. They go to Egypt, and boom, it becomes this massive nation in Egypt, so much so that the pharaoh is threatened by them. They're like rabbits out there. We've got to get rid of them. They're going to rise up and take us over. And so they want to oppress them even further. And that doubles the multiplication. All of a sudden, now we've got a nation coming, all of a sudden, under oppression. So you know the story goes out from Egypt. God delivers them from Egypt through Moses. And they come to the foot of Mount Sinai where God speaks to his people. Now we're like, okay, how are they actually going to become a nation? They've got the people. What makes a nation a nation? Laws, right? a constitution of sorts, an agreement. Well, here comes God and says, I'm going to give you exactly that to make you this people. And where are they headed to? They're headed to the land, Right? headed to the promised land. So we see the Abrahamic covenant starting to take place even at the foot of Sinai. Now again, you have the Ten Commandments summarizing the, the terms of the covenant. It's not like in the other covenants previous that it's like one verse says, here's the oath, here's what I'm going to do, or a few verses. This is chapters. And then it's reiterated in Deuteronomy because they blow it the first time, right? So let me just read in Exodus chapter 24 because this highlights something unique about this covenant. 24 verse 7. Then he, that's Moses, 
took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now we're going to have to pool our remembrance of this covenant, but what was unique about the Mosaic covenant as far as these other ones go so far? There's something unique about the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant. Hey, there you go. That's a big deal. So this is the first and only bilateral covenant in the Bible. So these ones, God has said, I'm going to do this. And you're just coming along for the ride. I'm going to do this. You're coming along for the ride. I'm going to use you as the vessel through which I'm going to do this. Mosaic covenant, God says, here's the commands. You obey these, you will be blessed. You disobey, you will be cursed. And the people, as we just read, say, we will obey. <laughs> and we say, yeah, right. Like, that did not go so hot, right? But they are enter into this covenant with God. So now you have these multiple parties where the other covenants were just God entering in and God. Here it's God and the nation of Israel. And what happens through the rest of Israel's history? It's when they obey, guess what happens? They are blessed. When they disobey, which is often, they are cursed. It does not go well. So much so that they're deported several times. The Assyrians come in. The Babylonians come in. And we need to be very cautious because when we come to the Mosaic Covenant and the law, as we call it, when we even come to the Gospels, which we were just in in Matthew, they're still under the law. So we want to be very... We are not under the law. First, we're not Israel. And Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? And so we need to understand when we read the Bible... Be aware what covenant we're dealing with here. If we're dealing with Mosaic covenant and the law and the blessings and the curses, which many false teachers out there today come and say, if you just do this, God will bless you because he says in Haggai, he does this. Hang on a second. Was that written to Oakville 2022? No. No, it wasn't. It was written to Jews living under the law. And they themselves went into the covenant knowingly and said, we will obey. And if we don't, may the curses be on us. I've never entered into any such covenant. Okay? That's not to say we can't learn from those things. We definitely can, but we need to handle them appropriately. So the Mosaic Covenant is unique in that it is bilateral. Okay? So we want to handle, and it was temporary. Eventually, it gets replaced by something way better, and we'll get to that in a moment, maybe. Okay? <laughs> As is always my problem, right? So we come to the Mosaic Covenant, and what was, um, you think back to this nation at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, what was God, why would he give them this law? This and it's specific, isn't it? It is. Like some of the laws, they're like, wow, that is um, very detailed. Why would God give them this law? To be a light to the, the world. Okay, so kind of have a bit of these, um, you know, blessing the, the world through the nation almost a little bit, some underpinnings of this happening. What else? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. They were just people. I mean, I think he just knew. Because the minute Moses turned their back, they were partying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there is a sense in which it's predictive. You know, and Paul will later come along and say the law was a schoolmaster. It was a tutor. It taught us our inability to live up to the standard God needs us to. Right? So it was predictive in a sense. It also, I would say, is um, it's protective in that it actually hemmed in God's people from all these surrounding nations. How can they be this nation that's going to bless the world if they look exactly like every other nation? 
how can this capital S seed come through them if the, if the nation gets so diluted with Canaanites and Malachites and Perizzites and all the other ites? You know, how, can it, how can this pure seed come through if it becomes so diluted that it's indistinguishable from all the other nations? Well, how about a nation that do, you know, doesn't mix cotton and this and that and doesn't eat? Like, there's so many specific laws that make them very unique. So it protects them, it hems them in from all these other nations. In fact, what was one of the main sins that God was always after his people to avoid, and yet they always hounded after? Sorry? Idolatry, right? And, and going after other gods. And the law was supposed to keep them from that. You know, one of the reasons they weren't supposed to, I'm teaching through Malachi in another group, but, and he comes after them for uh, marrying women from other nations, right? And in case you don't know, I married a woman not from my nation. So I'm glad that I'm not under that law anymore. But why would God have done that? Because he knows, and he says in the text, when you do that, you go after their gods as well. It's all about the idolatry. Because then you are taken away from me. And then we can't do these things anymore. So it is predictive of something better, but it is also protective. It's protecting the nation of Israel. Okay? But it's this, this is, and we should put a little asterisk here, this is a very unique covenant in that it was supposed to expire and it was bilateral. Yeah. Sorry, just a thought I just had. Would that be like a form of uh, sanctification? Uh, the the law itself? Yeah, well, well, in terms of setting the people apart from all the other nations. For sure. Sanctification literally is the setting apart. And so just as we in Christ are set apart, they were set apart as Israel right from the get-go, and their law definitely was a tool of sanctification as far as everyone knew, okay, Israel is different from us. They are set apart as God's people. Yeah, definitely. Then there's the progressive sanctification, which is a whole different animal, but... Okay, let's move on. Next covenant, and this one is, I'll just give it to you because it is often forgot about and is in Numbers 25. It is the priestly covenant with Phineas. And this is a random... So anyone know the Phineas story? You can give us a two-minute overview. you know this one? Is that the one where uh, there was something going on in the Yep. Yes, yes. So you might remember the story of Balaam. Balaam, right? And this prophet who uh, goes out to curse, ends up blessing and all this kind of stuff. And, but the people, the people go after... His new strategy is to bring uh, foreign women into the camp and take them away from the Lord. And it starts working. And so a curse, a plague comes into the camp of Israel, a um, a punitive, a punishment from God upon God's people. And so Phineas, filled with his own zeal, not zeal for the Lord necessarily, goes and takes a javelin and runs through these two lovers who are partaking in this uh, terrible thing causing the plague. And God is so pleased with his act of zeal that he relinquishes the plague and he makes a covenant with the house of Phineas. And it just, again, we, we don't oftentimes think of this covenant because it gets passed over. But in Numbers 25, let me just read a couple of verses here. Um, starting in verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, Say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. It shall be before him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So we have him establishing here a covenant. So we'll call this one the priestly covenant. It could be the Phineatic, I guess, covenant. But we have this priesthood, right? So a perpetual priesthood. What does a priest do? What's a priest do? 
That would be a profit. Sorry? An intercessor, right? So a priest represents the people before God. A prophet represents the God before the people. So a priesthood is this perpetual priesthood. In the line, he's a Levitical priest. He's from the line of Levi. He's Levi or Aaron's grandson. Okay, and this is actually from him comes the Zedekites, I think, and they are the the tribe that take over the priesthood when uh, David's son tries to kill him, and all the other priests turn from David and they go with Abimelech, and one line stays with David, and it is his line is this perpetual priesthood, eternal priesthood. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but you think about this. We're talking about millennial kingdom, eternal state. There's going to be a priesthood. I mean, if we, if we use this interpretive grid, this has to happen. He said a perpetual priesthood for eternity. Guess what? This has to happen. And I don't have to understand that for it to be so. We actually know in the millennial kingdom, Ezekiel 44, I think, that there is a temple in the millennial kingdom. There's sacrifices going on. Memorial, perhaps, of Jesus' sacrifice, a, a physical cleansing. I don't fully know. But all I know is there will be a perpetual priesthood because God has said there will be one. All right. Uh, next, this one is a bit more well-known. What's the next covenant? It's made there. Two more. Davidic covenant. Okay, give me the, the, the uh, rose notes on Davidic covenant. What is, what's the Davidic covenant? And what? A king? For how long? Forever, okay? And when he says a king, so we've got a, a king here, a ruler. Uh, for how long? And, and what, when people hear this, what are they expecting? They, are they expecting a spiritual kingdom? No way, no way are they expecting that. Remember, go back to the garden. What are they expecting? Someone on earth representing God and ruling in his stead, a mediatorial kingdom. And he says, David, from your line is going to come someone who will sit forever and reign from Jerusalem on a throne. This is not God reigning in our hearts through Christ. This is none of that stuff. This is an actual kingdom over the earth with someone from the line of David sitting upon that throne. That's what's expected. That's what God promised. Okay? So now, look at this. So now we've got a platform. We've got a people, a progeny, a place all built upon this platform. We've got this predictive and protective law for this nation. And we've got this priesthood interceding for them eternally before God. And we have a king that will reign for them over this nation. This is the cumulative promise. Now, there's one big covenant left. And what is that one? Last covenant. Thank you. Now, it's the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And what does this covenant do that none of the others do? We're still aching for something here. All this time, there's something going on we need Well, Jesus is actually described as the covenant. He is himself a covenant that comes. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood that he ratifies. But what does the new covenant supply for us that none of this did that we so desperately need? These are great. And I look forward to experiencing all of them. On our works, yeah. But I would say, except from this one, none of these are based on our works, Right? There's going to be no flood. It doesn't depend on how sinful I am. Right? There's all these kinds of things. But this one actually depends on Israel's works. There's still something desperate here. A new heart. None of this deals with sin yet. None of it deals with sin. Not eternally so. And that is our biggest problem since Genesis 3. Right? What good is a nation and land if we keep sinning against God? What good is a great king if we keep rebelling against that king? What good is a priesthood 
if the priesthood is constantly in work because representing us. We need a new heart. We need a spiritual sin transplant. And in the new covenant, he comes along and says, from the east is from the west. I will remove their iniquities from them. That's exactly what we need. And it actually makes all of these possible. Okay? And that's why when Jesus comes along, Jesus, the covenant, the new covenant, and he ratifies it in his blood, it actually makes all of these possible and useful. But we're waiting for this new covenant. And that's what we celebrate when we come to the table. We remember the blood and the body, and we remember, wow, he's actually our king. And he's going to come and reign in a perfect monarchy. All these governmental problems we have today, is it a democracy better? Is it socialism? All these kinds of things. They're all trash compared to the perfect monarchy that's coming. That's what we need, a perfect monarchy. And that's going to come in the future. We're going to have this perpetual priesthood that just, I think, just sacrifices in memory of the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God given for us to take away the sins of the world. This is undone. What this could not do and predicted is done in Christ. We cannot keep the law. I mean, the law would have done what the new covenant did. We would have been pure before the Lord if we kept every part of it. And that's the issue, right? We can't keep every part of it. So we needed someone to do it for us, and Jesus did it and died for us. So this will be no no more. It's predictive of this. Abraham, the land, the seed, his nation, blessing the world. What's the ultimate blessing coming through Abraham? It's this new covenant sacrifice that comes. So all this, and we'll have a new heavens and new earth, a perfect platform. This is the culmination of all the covenants. And this is the spine of all of the Bible. So when we read things in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, the book of 2 Thessalonians, the book of whatever, we never can go against anything that's written here because he's shouting. These are the covenants he's entered into. When someone says, well, the kingdom, there's no such thing as a kingdom because it's actually in your heart. Something changed when Jesus came, when they reject him. It cannot change or else God's against his word. It can't. When people will say the church has replaced Israel, they have taken on all the blessings of Israel because Israel blew it. Blew it which time? Israel blew it every time. That's not the point. Israel's blowing it highlights the graciousness and faithfulness of God. Go read Hosea. If you've read Hosea where this prophet has to take on a woman of the night to exemplify God's relationship with Israel. Goodness gracious. And he is still faithful. Still faithful. So because God, and by the way, these are all made with except for the Noahic covenant. These are all, in fact, even the new covenant is made with Israel, by the way. It's with Israel. We get grafted in through Christ, and we get the blessing of that. But the land is still land for Israel. The, the seed is still coming through Abraham's line. The nations are still coming from, these are very literal. The priesthood that is still going to come from the line of Phineas, literally. And so we take God at his word, and we say, this is going to happen as he says, because, man, this depends on it. If, God, if we can't take God on his word, then all this is not, because then the new covenant doesn't mean anything either. And we desperately need the new covenant. That is the reconciliation we have to a holy God through a perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And it set the stage all along for this new covenant. We remember, and we will remember in just a few minutes here at the table. Any questions? Oh, man, and 10 minutes left. That was good. I didn't need to speed through. Any questions? This is huge. Super important, these kinds of things. And not talked about all that much for their importance. He is the tela. He is the final point. He is the fulfillment. He is the apex of it all. The creation project. What does Colossians say about Jesus? All things were created through him and for him. He's talking about creation that was undone at the fall. It's all created through him and for him. It all comes to him again. It's all for him. And we get to share in it by hiding in Christ. Not because we're special, because through faith we get access to this in spite of ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'm super grateful that this is gone. 
I read the law, I'm like, oh my goodness, the sacrifices and the obedience that I know I can't muster up and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm so glad. The Lord knew what he's doing with me and put me in this time. I don't think I would have hacked it too well in that time. I wouldn't have been standing next to Phineas, I don't think. I'm too much of a coward. <laughs> Any other questions, comments about this? I know it's overwhelming, there's a lot going on here, but one way to understand the Bible and how it's put together. And really, the New Testament is the outworking of this. How then do we live as Jew-Gentiles brought together in a new covenant in the body of Christ while God is dealing with the church and Israel's on a disciplinary timeout right now? How then are we to live? And that's the rest of the New Testament. And that's why a lot of times we are in the New Testament here because it's helping us understand how we are to live in light of this. But we should never forget this. And we never take this and read it back into this. That's bad Bible reading. Bad reading in general. We never explain or change things that God has said based on new revelation. God, these texts can never mean what they never meant. What did he mean? They have to mean that going forward. They have to, or else God's a liar. They can be clarified by new revelation. Absolutely they can, but they can never be changed. Or else, again, God's not trustworthy, and I don't want to live in a world where God is not trustworthy. Okay? Okay. Let me pray for us, and we'll go out and, and worship together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you that you are a trustworthy God, a God who cannot lie. That gives us so much hope. We hope for this kingdom. We hope for this time of perfection. We hope for this time of restoration that you have promised. And we hope in it because, again, you are a God who cannot lie. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to study it with humility, but with confidence, knowing your character. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.